you know, I, I think 25% of it is like talent and 75% of it is like, do these people want to work with you? Like, do they want to spend all day, every day with you? Right. Because you just spend so much time with these people. It's like, do they want to let you in the family? Do they want you to be a part of that? And if you're an asshole, like, I don't think that flies anymore. And I don't think people, nobody wants that. You know, it's right. like nobody wants to spend every day with somebody who is just difficult and like, yeah. So. You know, if you want to, if you want to have practice at, you know, before you get into this industry, preparing for it, work on being the best dinner guest ever. There you go. You know what I <laughs> yeah. mean? Like, like yeah, see how great. many different people's houses you can go for dinner and, and get invited back and yes. have conversation and engage. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? Welcome to episode 25 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. We're moving along week after week. Hope y'all enjoyed episode 24, Director's Life, where we got into the ins and outs of the business of directing, at least some elements of the economics of it, what you need as a director to present yourself, what your director's team looks like and you know we touched on branded content commercials music videos feature films but the focus of the show was episodic television directing so i hope y'all enjoyed if you didn't get to check it out dive back in that is what we are calling our business episodes we also have craft episodes so every now and then when we're not doing interviews like we have this week i'll take the time to present something that is either narrative in design, creative, something constructed and presented to y'all to enjoy and maybe even discuss. And then when we're not doing craft, we'll pop away here and there with a business episode to talk about the game. So if there are any things that you're thinking you want to hear about as far as the business of uh, directing or entertainment or TV, fire away, leave a comment in our Gmail inbox, let's shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com, or you can always hop on to our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman IG page or my personal page at Pete Chapman and drop a comment. Now, I will dive into a couple comments before we get to an introduction of this week's guest on my Pete Chapman page. We have Anderson Lamar at Anderson Lamar asking, how can a person like myself with no directing background learn how to write and direct? Meaning is going back to college and majoring in film the best way or learning as an intern from a director the best way? And Anderson, to that question, I have no 
prescription for the best way. But I think what I would be an advocate of is maximizing your available resources to immerse yourself in the craft. So you can watch movies for not free, but we all have Netflix accounts probably or access to one, Amazon Prime, Hulu, TV. The first step in, in directing is, is in reviewing and in watching. I've talked at length about how when I hop from a show to a different show to a different show, I spend a good deal of time just watching a show, making sure I understand how they're communicating visually. And that is not only what type of camera moves, the look and feel of the show, the lens choice, but also the blocking, also the tone. I always recommend Criterion Collection DVDs that have a lot of special features behind the scenes. These are the inexpensive ways that don't require you to go in debt. Another thing that you can do is shoot, build a team to create with, and shoot, edit, you know, be a cinematographer, just learn by practice. Another thing you can do if you can't necessarily put yourself in debt for film school would be to take film or cinematography or editing workshops. I took a great deal of those, including the art of cinematography by, of course, now I'm going to forget the name, but that was a workshop that I took with my old podcast co-host, Anthony Artis. And it was for us to really get a handle on not only cameras, but color theory and composition and movement and describing the different shots that are the language of cinema. As someone who went to film school for four years and taught there for even more and worked there for over a decade, I learned some of the best things about directing and cinematography from a three-day workshop. And, you know, there was one portion of that course where the cinematographer talked about the importance of clarity and communication. What you need to be able to do is speak very deliberately and specifically about the needs of the camera. So there's a difference between, you know, you might hear people say, pan up, but you don't pan up, you pan left and right. You tilt up and down. Are you zooming or are you dollying or pushing in? Am I following a character with the camera on their back or am I leading a character? with the camera in front of them, pulling them along. And all of those things are incremental in slowly mastering the game. And I think just go for what you can and begin to just dedicate yourself to mastering the craft. Listening to this podcast, honestly, I hope is doing a small part of answering your question week after week, because we've got 24 hours of conversation that my hope is you walk away from the pod feeling like I didn't know that, there's a gem that I can apply to my next project and thank y'all. So that's uh, question one from Anderson Lamar. At Pursuit of the Mask, wanted to know what are common platforms that directors like yourself typically use to gather inspiration for your projects? Everything I just mentioned. Absorb everything. Read, podcasts, magazines, short stories, go for it. And Sheru Kairu, at Sheru Kairu is asking me to dissect your visual approach to a project. And I will do that on a future craft episode, Sheru. So I appreciate y'all. We'll get to more comments in the future, more questions. And in the meantime, let's introduce Mike Berlucci. 
Mike is a cinematographer. I had the pleasure of doing three episodes of Mythic Quest with Mike, episode eight in season one and episodes two and three in season two. Season two will drop on May 7th on Apple TV, but there will be a special premiere episode this Friday, April 16th, will be the premiere of Everlight, which is season two, episode one of Mythic Quest. So that'll be 20 shot episodes by Mike Berlucci. You may also be familiar with him for having shot You're the Worst, Teenage Bounty Hunters, and uh, you'll learn more in this interview. So let's get into it. Super talented guy, great dude, great eye, awesome collaborator, Mike Berlucci. Let's shoot with Pete Chapman. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Action. All right. So what people don't know, it's the beginning of the interview right now, but it's actually take three. And so we're going to start this interview just giving a little shout out to Mike for being so patient. We had some technical difficulties, but, you know, you guys are getting the final cut here. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, of course. Thank you, Pete. I mean, it's nothing compared to that quarantine episode. Truly, it's that Mythic Quest quarantine seemed like it was, uh, you know, all easy and everything, but no, <laughs> it was, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let's let's come back to that. You, you've spoken, done a lot of interviews and kind of shared the process and got mm-hmm. me to download Filmic Pro on my <laughs> iPhone. So I can make my iPhone stuff look better. But let's re let's rewind to take one and i want to ask you again but now for people to hear like what's the what's that kill your baby shot and and that's a horrible term but what what that is cinematically is for for people that that don't know it's kind of like you know you work on these shots you could spend three hours getting a setup and then it gets either cut entirely out of the episode or the film or you know cut down to five frames and a part of you may know that it's right for the story, but another part of you may feel like that would have been cool <laughs> to, yeah. to have in this show. So what would that be for you? Yeah. So the kill your baby shot for me would have been this one shot in episode or a season one of mythic quest episode five, dark, quiet death. It's uh our two our two video game developers in the 90s they just kind of landed their first big their big sale somebody agreed to produce their video game and it's them running out of this building so excited and they just like can't help themselves but break into a dance and they jump up on this like this kind of elevated round, you know, old card display and they start doing this little choreographed dance together. And we had this shot in mind that was overhead as high as we could go. I mean, there was a massive building. So we needed a 65 foot techno crane and it was just this overhead that's beautiful. The sun's coming in and it's kind of spinning and dropping down and and it was a lot of work to get that shot. It took a lot of engineering to even get that thing in the building to get the piece of equipment in and when i saw the edit 
I was just like, where did this shot go? <laughs> that one shot that took up so much of our day. And ultimately, it just wasn't the most effective route. We, we covered it with a Steadicam as well. And our Steadicam operator, Tom Valco, he did such a beautiful job with that shot. And it was just so much more intimate. And mm. it added so much more life to it, where I think, you know, you have all these cool shots in your mind and like you can, uh, but once you see them in context and once you see it in the edit, it's sometimes it just doesn't work. And you, all of that time and money spent and energy, it just doesn't, there was sometimes a simpler way to do it. And so, yes, that was a bummer to not see that on screen, but at the same time, it, it was the right call. So, right. yeah. Do you think if it had been a film that the shot would have made it? Like, like, so like, is there a difference in, in your mind as a cinematographer as to how you consider your compositions and, and your shots in TV versus film? Absolutely. I mean, to be totally honest, I've, I've actually never done a feature then shorts and things like that but the in features i think you do have a bit more time to let shots play out and let things breathe and maybe make a little more of a meal of something that may seem just very simple you know it was it was a 30 second little moment between these two characters and in television, there are time constraints. The audience maybe doesn't have as much of a attention span for it at times. It also depends on what the show is and who's who's watching. And but for this in particular, it felt had we have put that in the cut, it just would have. It's just one more like unnecessary thing. And. But yeah, when, you know, in television, coverage is, is very important on a lot of these shows and having your options and seeing the faces. Where... That, was, that was a big education for me because I, the first few shows I did, you know, I was like, I had a lot of black swan moments you know where we're on the back of natalie portman as she approaches lincoln center <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. Long yeah. Shot. yeah and yeah those those kind of shots never made it into the cut no uh, and and slowly i was being educated to the fact that we want to look into these people's eyes even if this is a interesting way to tell the story because we have limited time and that's what people are here to here to see yeah that being said, I do think that there is this shift happening in television where people are starting to treat them a little bit more like films. And right. the audiences are, I think, craving that in a way as well. And and it's a lot of the creators are being given, I feel, a bit more freedom to do what they want to do and make those yeah. black swan moments and but it all it also totally depends on where the show is and who's involved and you know right but, 
the good ones, I feel like there's definitely some, yeah, there's room for that kind of stuff. So, so I'm going to, I'm kind of hopping around thematically, but like you mentioned the, just the logistics of getting a 65 foot crane into a location, describe that, right? Because I think a lot of times for emerging cinematographers and directors, like there's this idea of the shots you want to get, but then there's the actual mechanics of getting that shot and, and can you achieve it based off of your location demands or, you know, constraints. So like, what is, what does that look like? And how are you making that call? And how are you picking a 65 versus a, a a 35 foot, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that was an, that was an easy one. Rob said, (laughs) Rob, our director on the episode said, what is the biggest crane that exists in town? (laughs) And I said, I'm pretty sure it's the 65 foot. He's like, all right, we're getting that one. So then we we didn't have much of a choice at that point. (laughs) We had to figure it out. So the logistics of that on the tech scout, you will kind of go with all of your keys. You'll go your key grip, your rigging key grip, your gaffer, you know, the all the whole team, the construction department locations. And I think on this particular location, if I recall, it was a double door like a double man door and this this particular crane comes on like this giant motorized base that mm-hmm. you have it just has to inch along um so it's just so large and heavy and so we we knew we had to kind of schedule our day with the first half of the day being shot you know upstairs some other little scenes while they spent the first 6 hours of the day moving the crane in wow. so it was just a, I remember it was so much plywood. There were steps involved and having to having to build ramps and, you know, really consolidate this crane as much as possible to make it as compact as possible. And it was just really uneven terrain, but yeah, logistically very challenging to make a shot like that possible. And then I do remember on this particular day we had, as we were, we got the crane in, as we were coming down to do the shot, the remote head. So one of these cranes is controlled by, you know, from the ground on the wheels and the remote head was acting up. So we, there was like an additional two hours spent just trying to figure out how to, to get this head working. It was a brand new head and untested and, yeah. So like from a manpower position or a person power position, mm-hmm. you've got the, the crane operator and then you've got, and they're at the wheels moving it left to right, up, down, whatever. And then do you have someone else controlling the actual movement of the camera or are those the same? So person? the camera operator is controlling the wheels. They are controlling, which in turn controls the movement of the head. And then... You have a crane operator who is controlling the arm. Then you have a crane tech who is kind of there as a general technician for the crane. And then you have a head tech, somebody who is just there to troubleshoot any issues that may arise with the head. And then you have the entire grip department of probably 10 to 12 people who are all working in tandem to like make this possible and get this thing into position. And 
So it's probably, yeah, a good 17, you know, 17 people working on just making this one thing possible. And then you then add in everybody else that's required for the lighting of it and the the camera assistance. And, you know, it, it takes the whole company at that point. So. And how do you communicate with these folks, right? Because you're you're kind of speaking in technical and I assume like emotional terms mm-hmm. that they can use to then execute on the vision that you got for the shot with the director. Like how does that how does that work as you feed it down the 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 phone game, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Shot? I mean, fortunately, I don't need to relay this information to every single one of those, you know, 20 or so people. It's, I have my kind of my little core team of the camera operator, the first assistant, the gaffer and the key grip, and then the AD. And generally between those five or so people, I can communicate the needs and then they will then disperse. So it's, they will kind of run it down the line from there, letting everybody know what they need to do. And, but yeah, the person's the, the, you know, the person that I'm really having those emotional conversations with are the director and the camera operator. And that's, and, you know, and the gaffer, I mean, in terms of the lighting, you know, in cinematography, light is, just so much of it and and you can feel so many different ways by how it's lit and so those are really the those are really the people that were having those like this is the feeling of this moment or this scene those are the people that those conversations are happening with so before you were you were you know working in tandem with and guiding this 20 person crew for for a 65 foot crane how'd you get your start like what made you want to even get into storytelling and pick up a camera and pursue this career yeah so yeah it it kind of all started when i was a when i was a kid i'm, I'm backing up a little further but it's I grew up kind of skateboarding, rollerblading, you know, doing all the extreme sports and, you know, all of those guys that I was skating with and hanging around, they all started joining bands and making music. And I didn't know how to, I was just so not musically inclined whatsoever. And I wanted to be involved. Like I wanted to somehow like, help them in these ventures they were, you know, setting out on. And while I was skating, we'd make these skate films and things like that. So I was like, okay, maybe I can transition that into filming their concerts, filming their music videos. And, and that's kind of where it started. So it was grabbing my parents' VHS camera and just making these little videos with them and, filming little performances and then incorporating some little narrative stuff. And it was all very goofy at the time, but it, but it was fun. And that's kind of where I started getting the like, all right, this is, this is really interesting. Like 
I enjoy doing this. Is this something I could pursue? And right around that time, I was spending a lot of time in the dark room and at my high school, we had a photography class and where'd you grow up? I grew up in Michigan, about 30 minutes outside of Detroit, a little town called Brighton, really big school out in kind of the country. And, but it was just a, you know, such a big span of you know, big swath of land that everybody, I mean, we were at 2000, some kids at our school and yeah. So it was, you know, it was not a film community at all. I was the person doing it in my hometown. But in Detroit, just a quick drive away, there was so much automotive work happening. You got all these car companies and car commercials and things like that. So there was this little contingent of people working in town, but it was a very small community that I wasn't a part of yet. And you know, as I was kind of growing those music videos and trying to make them better and higher production value, I, I'd be going to these rental houses and like, hey, guys, can I, I, I don't have insurance, but could I borrow a light? You know, I'll give you 50 bucks. Like, could I have like a Kino Flow or a little airy three light kit or whatever it was? And I just kept bothering them. And they're like, yeah, 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 sure. Take it. You can have a C stand, whatever. And then eventually I just kept like going back and back and I'm like, guys, can I work here, please? Like, I'll do anything. Like I'll sweep the shop floor or whatever. And they eventually let me do it. And right around that time, the film incentives came into Michigan. And that was, that changed everything for me because there were just these huge productions coming in transformers and like scream four and the wizard of oz you know all of these things and and there was nobody to work on these films so i was able to join the union in town at a very young age i think i was 18 19 when i joined and did you join by virtue of of doing enough work or was it we're going to put you in the union because we need people and the pool is small that was it it was okay. the pool being so small they would come to these the lighting rental house to get their equipment and they just needed people and they saw something in me or whatever and they're like let's give this kid a shot and yeah, so I kind of was fast-tracked into the, the local Grip Electric Union that way and started working on these films. And the lighting aspect of it was always so interesting to me. And the camera side was cool. Like, I was, I was into it. But for me, I felt the lighting was more magical. It was more mysterious. It was something that I couldn't quite wrap my head around. You know, cameras are cameras. They've the technology changes a lot, but it's it's right. a little simpler, I think. Mostly, you just hit a button and anybody's going to be HD out the box, right? Yeah, so, I mean... But the yeah. lighting the is going to be the difference. Exactly. That's what really makes the difference. 
you can make a four, you know, an iPhone look amazing if it's lit right. And yeah, so that was the thing that really interested me. And I would jump on these films that I had no business being on all the while shooting music videos with my friends on the weekends and like kind of transitioning. I would start meeting people who were doing the commercials in town and there's one director in particular, Anthony Garth, who was like the big director in Detroit. He, he and I met and he kind of took me under his wing and just started like bringing me onto these commercials. And eventually I was shooting for him and they were, you know, they were sneaking me on the call sheet as the motorhome driver, but I was like actually shooting because <laughs> I right, wasn't in right, the camera right. union at that point. So I hope nobody hears that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was the first, yeah. what was like the first job? You know what I mean? Where you're like, okay, like I'm, I'm shooting this shit. Like, what was that? The first one I think that meant there's two that really stick out to me. One, there was a band that, you know, they they were fairly well known around the area. And I think they had a couple big hits that kind of traveled outside of the city, but they were called the Von Bondies. It was my first job with Anthony and uh, it was a music video. And that was something, you know, they they approached me about it, but I didn't want to direct at that point I was like I want to be a cinematographer so I reached out to him and I said hey man like I I want to do this video and I will you direct it and I'll shoot it and I said we should shoot it on 35 millimeter film you know they had five thousand dollars for it and I was right. just like and oh what my. year what this year was that 2000 2008 or nine maybe okay okay yeah and and he said, you know, have you ever shot on film before? I'm like, oh yeah, of course, all all the time. <laughs> and, and we did it. He's like, all right, let's do it. So we shot on film, and somehow it came out. Honestly, <laughs> and uh, that's where I was just like, oh my god, like this is I'm doing this for real. And right. uh, but you know, there's something about shooting 35 too, man. Like I I didn't shoot 35 for a long time. Like I, you know, like I came out of school doing 16 and then everything went to video. I mm -hmm. think I, I, I finally shot 35 in around 2008, 2009. And I was like, I've made it. And yeah, I was yeah. like, no, you haven't. Cause that was all digital. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but exactly. The, but the, that 35 look is incredible, man. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you know, the other really, good one that sticks out to me was this General Motors commercial. My father worked at GM and he, you know, he was always very supportive of what I was doing. And, and we were this job I got on. It was a fairly big job. I was just shooting the B camera on it, but we were shooting at his work at, you know, in his section of General Motors and like, for him to be able to come over to set and see like, you know, to see me working and seeing like, Oh, there's all these people. And like, he's got a big camera, <laughs> you know, yeah. I was just like, damn, this is really, 
like just just a great moment you know he came over and ate lunch with us and brought all of his buddies and you know look yeah. at my son you know so that was Brown real pop cool. yeah 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 that was, that was the other one that really stuck out and then you know as an electrician on a lot of these big films that was really it was really cool that was something that I just learned so much more than, you know, I, th I think I ever would have had I've gone to school. And, you know, I did a semester of community college right out of high school, but I was turning down all of these jobs, being a grip or an electrician. And I just, at a certain point, was like, I don't know if this makes sense. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, and because it's so much about timing. And timing is so much about setting, you know, and location. Like if you weren't in that, in Michigan at that time, benefiting from the byproduct of incentives that were implemented because New York was too expensive, you know what I mean? Like, like it would have been an entirely different route and we never know how we're going to get there, but you respond to the opportunities, right? Yeah. And I mean, that film incentive in Michigan was three, four years, maybe. And that was it. And it just evaporated. And for me, it was just that perfect moment for me to be able to sneak in there. And that's, yeah, until I kind of got my start. And so how'd you get from, or, ra or rather, where'd you, where'd you go next? Because did you stay in Michigan and continue working? Did you know, you get brought to LA, like what was the, what was like the kind of next step up the ladder for you? For me, the next stop was New York. So I had just finished all of these movies and I could tell the film incentive was kind of drying up and, and I had developed this little body of work at this point of just the side projects I was doing and saved up enough and moved out to New York and I knew my roommate and that was it and eventually just kind of started yeah just hitting anybody up that I could and made one contact there which then you know that's just how it goes and then it just snowballs from there and I just started shooting bigger and better work out there. A lot of, I like found myself in this fine art world, which was something I just knew nothing about at the time. And, right. and that was really where I feel like I solidified myself as a cinematographer. So would um, that be like a portrait of Marina Abramovic? And stuff that's like right. That? Yeah. Yeah. So Marina and the Lady Gaga piece we did with Robert Wilson, those kind of things. They were just so, I mean, they were just so creatively fulfilling. The both of those projects, I mean, the Lady Gaga one in particular was just, you know, our mission was to recreate these these three master paintings that were kind of hung in the Louvre and we were inserting her into into canvas backdrops and recreating those but in live action right and 
that was that was just a cinematographer's dream you know because you always reference those paintings and you always you know when you're those lighting styles and then trying to recreate those was just was just incredible and and that that particular project unbeknownst to me as i was starting it they were ultimately they replaced the paintings in the louvre with our video portraits oh wow they hung them up which was which was just crazy i mean they put your video portraits in like in a in a similar frame and aspect ratio i guess to what the the yeah so it was like you know it was like a tv and they would they hung it vertically on the wall wow and you could stand there and you could look at this television for an hour two hours and you never see a cut it's just it's her breathing it's her blinking it's her you know just being and they (laughs) replaced the the actual paintings with these things it was pretty it was pretty surreal and i was very fortunate i was able to go to the install of them and at the louvre yeah wow when it was when it was when it was closed so i like we had run of the place. It was amazing. Right. Once in a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. It's like you and then I guess Jay-Z and Beyonce, right? They shot that. There you go. <laughs> yeah, the three of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's dope, man. It's so funny, though, like how like you just the journey just takes you where it goes. And, and somehow you end up packing your suitcase with it with very vital things that help you for your next gig, right? Like, yeah. like what, what would you say were a couple takeaways from being a cinematographer on those types of projects that has informed what you do now? Oh, it's so interesting. Cause I feel like what I've done now, I've transitioned so far away from that when I got into comedy television. I mean, it's the complete opposite side of things. But I feel like it, it maybe, I mean, just the experience of being there and being around those people and talking about art, talking about the different artists and paintings that related to those things that we were doing, it all kind of informs your style and everything, whether it's subconsciously or not. It just I feel like it skews your taste a little bit and kind of helps develop that. Those were the first things that I actually walked away from feeling confident as a cinematographer like okay I can do this I've been put into these those two projects in particular like very challenging very very talented people involved and it just solidified like okay I'm doing the right thing right they were both very big productions which kind of set me up to be able to come out to los angeles and jump onto a television show with you know a crew of 100 plus and that's the definitely one of the bigger takeaways from right from those projects so so that you feel that that was that the was that a bit of a catapult toward you're the worst so you're the worst that was that one kind of totally came out of left field for me. I had done those projects and there was a little indie movie called The Kings of Summer directed by Jordan Vo Roberts. And he, I went out and shot second unit on that film and 
as we finished that up, he came out to LA to do the pilot of You're the Worst in a few episodes. And they kind of did the first two seasons of that show. And season three, they were looking for a new cinematographer. And Jordan and I had kind of remained friends. And he, he recommended me for it. At that point, I had no narrative work whatsoever. It was those art pieces, music videos, things like that. And when he told me, put, it up, put me up for it, I was just like, okay, great, thank you. I'm never going to get that, but you know, I appreciate it. And the producer on that as well was actually a, a good friend of my then, you know, my girlfriend at the time, who's not my wife. So like once my name got thrown in there, she was like, oh, that's Danielle's, you know, boyfriend. Like maybe we should consider him. And then it came down to our showrunner, Stephen Falk. And I remember I put together this website for him that was basically explaining paragraph of like i've never done this i can do it here are examples of the commercials i've done where people are talking to each other (laughs) you know we're just like i was grasping at straws trying to find anything that like somehow related to comedy television and the story of you're the worst and i think he saw something in there and then we met and we got we got along great and I got the job. So I love was, that story, man. That's dope. Thanks. Yeah, it was really just kind of putting myself out there in an uncomfortable position, being honest, just telling him, look, I've never actually done this. And I think had I've gone into it act, you know, acting like I had had all this experience with television or for one, I would have got found out. Right. <laughs> he, would, he, right. would, he would have Googled me and been like, what are you talking about? No, you have <laughs> But yeah, that was it. And then, and then from there, you know, I did three seasons of that show. And the, one of the producers on that show was producing Mythic Quest. And that's mm-hmm. how that, that kind of came about. Hey, this is Rob McElhenney, and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's upcoming book from Michael Weezy Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him a start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is coming soon. Now, this was, I have two questions now, and, I, and I'm, I'm I, tell me if I'm pulling at straws, but mm-hmm. I was going to ask you if your experience in the art world was helpful in this presentation that you put together to present yourself as a potential DP for You're the Worst, because a lot of times, right, it's like, folks are pulling from not only their past work, but they're, you know, they're pulling visual references and they're pulling, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes paintings as an example of light. And 
it seems like you may have been more immersed in uh, the world to have more options from which to find inspiration? Like, did you find that that had occurred from having been in the art world with those folks shooting those types of projects? I do think so. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I also think the bigger, the bigger selling point to somebody who's potentially going to hire me seeing those types of projects is the names behind them. Mm -hmm. I think they're like, okay, he's worked with people, real people, <laughs> like real, like, you know, Lady Gaga. And it's like, I think from that, there is like a bit of confidence that's instilled with them. Like, okay, he can, he can handle this right. type of thing. But, but yeah, I do feel like those influences, because I definitely included those in there. I definitely built out a deck for that show that was, that were references that we used for those projects and different things that I hadn't known about prior to doing those jobs. And yeah, I, I definitely think that helped. Yeah. What would, what was like the main difference for you? If you came on to you're the worst, there's a bit of an established look and feel, but then you're going to mythic quest and it's season one, episode one, cinematographer, Mike Berlucci. Like what are you doing in prep to design that world? Like, just kind of run through what that process looks like. Cause I, I feel like that may be a bit of a new thing for a lot of the people listening. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, coming into something that is established versus creating something new, there was a bit of that feeling of like, we want to, we want to maybe shift the look of season three and we kind of want to develop it and improve upon it. It was a beautiful show before then, but, they want, you know, they also just wanted to keep adding on to it and heightening it in a way. And so I had a little bit of that experience of trying to like take something and turn it into something newish. But when you jump into something like uh, season one, episode one of Mythic Quest, that was actually a really scary moment for me in, in a couple ways. You know, we had, we had some references there were different things talked about, whether it was like the Steve Jobs movie or like the social network. And there were different things being thrown around. And generally speaking, I feel the the directors and the showrunner and myself, we really powwow and we really, you know, start to nail down a look for this thing. And on Mythic Quest, David was doing the pilot and David is kind of, he's like a very free, you know, that's David Gordon, David Gordon Green. Yes. Yes. And he was kind of, he's very free and like finding it as we're going. And, you know, so our conversations were actually pretty limited as we were getting into it. And they were very few and far between. We read through the script and we're like, oh, yeah, this could be cool. This could be cool. And I put together a deck and it was like, what about something like this for this scene? And, but there was no, we never set any hard and fast rules for the show. And that was kind of the beauty of it. And that's why I am such a fan of David and his work, because at any given moment, any scene, we're mixing things up so heavily, just in terms of 
whether we're handheld or we're like zoom, a really long zoom across the room or these powerful push-ins or whatever it is. There was no hard, fast rules going into it. We knew we wanted it to look real. We knew we wanted to it to be honest and have a natural feeling to it. And, you know, we had one set for that pilot. I mean, there was a couple little auxiliary locations, but once we had that set lit, it was kind of, you know, it is what it is. And like our production right. designer, our production designer, Mark Worthington, he created such a beautiful set for us and with lighting in mind. And I'd came on pretty late in the process. The set was already designed. It was already, you know, partially built. And I think there may, may have been another cinematographer involved at some point. I don't exactly know, but I did come in a bit late to the game. And so there was a lot of these things that were already in place in a way, no lighting or anything like that, but the windows were where the windows are. The right. the skylights were where they are. And are you coming in and saying, okay, I think this should be a pullable wall. I think, you know, we should design this one a little bit bigger because potentially it's going to be somewhere that lives with dance floor and camera dollies. Like, are you, would you be involved in those combos or is that more of the production designer presents it to you and you're like, yay nay or yeah you know <laughs> yeah yeah in a perfect world yes i'm i'm on as early as possible and we're kind of developing all of these things together but more often than not when i'm coming into a new show the sets are they are drawn up at this point they may not be exactly to scale like i may be be able to have some input on like okay let's let's move this let's open this room up a bit let's pull that wall make it pullable Put a camera port here, there. Let's add a window here. And fortunately, when I did come into Mythic Quest, there was there was still time for that. I was still able to kind of say, like, okay, this wall we should make pullable. Ports are always easy. You can cut a hole in the wall and stick the lens through and cover it up with a picture. Right. But but yeah, in terms of where all the light was coming from, that was kind of already in place at that point. You know, because the, the designers, the production designers and the art department generally starts quite a bit ahead of the cinematographer in television. You know, oftentimes a DP will get three, four, maybe five weeks of prep on a series. And then the designer will be on for a month ahead of that. So, right. and, you know, if you're lucky enough to kind of get in there, maybe not on the clock at that point, but in those conversations early on yeah the sooner the better so yeah i ask because i feel like sometimes i've i've shown up to environments where i feel like the the language of the show is not necessarily supported by the design of the set you sure know? sure and, and yeah. so you're like like you realize this is like a, a five-person family and you put a lot of scenes in this room and we can't really we have to we're almost on like a one camera setup in certain directions because we can't get two in and, and you're kind of like i wonder how that happened um yeah but, yeah you know. are you one of those directors who likes to do the one camera one direction and then grab your piece of you know then kind of work your way around or like what's your preference i would say and you know 
I'll, I'll, I'll be undiplomatic. I can do whatever is requested, <laughs> whatever the show <laughs> needs. But I yeah. do find that I'm not the biggest fan of cross-shooting mm. just because you end up having to make a decision about whose eyes you're going to be in, mm-hmm. right? Because someone you can be right in their eyes and then someone you have to be a little bit off axis. And that just kind of feels not ideal to me. And I think that it's probably a vestige of of being a feature filmmaker and a short filmmaker from the beginning, right? Like mm-hmm. I like to have, I want to be in your eyes and I want to turn around and be in my eyes, you know? Yeah. And I think the other part of it is I shot a lot of doc work, which I kind of like I find sometimes when you're doing two camera setups, and tell me if you agree, I find mm-hmm. sometimes like I'm in these positions where folks are trying to make both cameras work full time in the, in, in the shot and it's compromising something, right? So like, yeah. like you're making both cameras work in, in one direction, but it's like, if let that camera lose lose the scene for 10 seconds so this one can get in there and get like the moment and then you know we'll fall back in where you can where you can get it and i've i've found sometimes it's almost like it's so ingrained in some crews that you have to get everything working all the time that you find resistance when you're just like one camera setup you know <laughs> as if it's not being efficient but Sometimes you got to tell a story. So long-winded answer, but yeah, I find I want to be in people's eyes, man. I, I want to be, I know there's like speed and time that and scheduling that you're fighting, but as much as we can be in people's eyes, I feel like that's where the story lives. That's where the story lives in the emotion. And yeah, that's how you tell if somebody's happy or if they're sad or if they're, it's, that's where it's at. Right. So I agree with you. I mean, I am a fan of letting something not work for half of the, you know, half the take. And, but you're getting something really hero with one of the cameras. And cross shooting can be really challenging. It's your blocking becomes so limited at that point as well. Cause it's like, okay, if you move a little to your right, now we're just digging into that other camera. If you move a little, you just kind of fall into a very static, like, blocking situation i feel like we've we've got pretty good at it on mythic quest in terms of when we do find ourselves in those cross covering positions like i feel like we choose the right moments to do it right where the blocking maybe isn't so they can just be sitting still it's not a big deal so yeah i think though that what you've done with that show is is cinematic and and because there are times where there are there are oftentimes moments where there's a commitment to the the best shot right like I, I on some shows i've gone to i found like oh if you ask to pull a wall you know you're looked at like you're stanley kubrick you know, <laughs> 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 you know? Yeah. And, and it's like <laughs> well but like I was watching our episode before we got on and I was like, oh yeah, I remember in David and Brad's office, which was pretty tight, you know, like there were, and I think 
from your from your expertise after season one, season two, it kind of had a few more portals and some walls that were pullable mm-hmm. that weren't like that. But there's like cool stuff where it's like, all right, pull the wall so we can put the camera right over the computer, you know, when they're looking into it and that can be the master. When typically on some shows, I'll be like, well, you got to master from the door because that's where yeah. you can put the camera. And it's just, you know, there's more comedy sometimes in, 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 in the shot that just gets you in people's eyes in a, in a weird kind of wide angle lens. So yeah, hundred percent. And that was a really cool thing about all of the people involved on mythic quest is when I proposed all of these changes for season two to the set, they, everyone understood and they're like, Oh yeah, that's fine. They, the office could have had some work done between seasons. No big deal. There wasn't like that commitment to like, continuity making sure that it was exactly the same as the first season they said if this can improve the look of the show and make our make our days more efficient as well by all means let's do it so so last week's episode was about the business of directing and i kind of hopefully you know pulled back the curtain a little bit and shared like and I'm not asking you to do this, but I share like what the minimums are for, you know, TV, because it's all it's all pre-negotiated by a BGA. What your time guarantees are as far as number of days, et cetera. But I also got into like the economics of the job for me, which are things like making a reel, you know, making a website. You know, at a, at a certain point, it was owning a camera. What are the for folks who are looking to following your path like what are the economics of a cinematographer in terms of being able to present yourself as such you know and being able to you know do as much work as possible should you own a camera like what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on on, on mm-hmm. those questions well yeah i i think starting out having access to something that you can get quality images out of whether it's a, as simple as like a Sony A7 or, you know, even your phone, like you, there are ways at this point, like everybody has access to it. But if you want to start kind of getting those jobs and like a little step up, owning a camera, I do think is smart. I personally, I, I don't at this point, but I, when I first started, I was working at before I was doing the grip electric thing, I was working at Kroger, our local grocery store. During the day, I was inspecting auto parts under a microscope at night, and I was just saving as much as I could to buy the Canon XL2, if you remember that. Oh, yeah. And that's where, that's when I really started working, like as a shooter, and, you know, because I had a pretty decent camera at the time. And, you know, it shot 28 days later, like that was its big, like claim to fame at the time. And so having that, it, it was huge for me. That's what allowed me to start like building my reel in a proper way. And I think it's really demo reels are, are incredibly helpful when you have projects that you're not super proud of every shot in the thing. <laughs> <You know>? um, <laughs> Very diplomatic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you pull, you know, you pull, you can pull clips, like really nice looking shots from all of these different projects and string together a reel to a nice piece of music. And 
that can kind of help get you these projects you may not be able to otherwise. Like, or if somebody was just looking at your website and it only has all of your work on there, but half the shots aren't great. Right. It's like, if you can kind of present yourself with your best foot forward, like these are just really nice shots, then, right. you know, that that's really helpful early on. And I think it can still be helpful in instances as you make it further into your career. If there's something, if there's a very specific look for a show that you know you've done a bit of throughout all these various projects and you can kind of string it together to kind of create a feeling. And so that was, that was crucial for me early on was having a camera and creating a little reel. And as I started getting more projects from that and as like the ratio of good shots to bad shots, like, <laughs> right, right, you know, right. it was starting to favor the good ones. Then I could start presenting myself, you know, with like, okay, here's this project. Here's this, you know, this thing right. in its entirety. Like, look, I can, I can create a, a great piece from start to finish. Right. Yeah. And, and, and for people listening to like, this is an ever, it's a moving target. Like I, I have a reel that I'm proud of, but like I was watching two cuts of, I got my first editor's cut of each of the two you episodes I did. And I was like, uh -huh. I, that's going on the reel. Cause I don't have nice. anything like that. You know what I mean? And, and because you're, you constantly are like trying to sell people on all that you can do. So you don't get pigeonholed. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that happens when you're, you know, working DP who's got all the credits and people love you for what you do, but they think you can't shoot action, you know? Yeah, or, absolutely. Like, have, you, have you come up against that? Has there been anything where you found, I don't know, people are like, I don't know if you could do that. Like I, like I, I know for me, I've met for shows that are like, you know, I don't know why I might not have gotten a job, but I would put a hunch on the fact that they're like, oh, well, you haven't done X, Y, Z. And it's like, yeah, but I'll kill that. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. let me go make something that helps you understand that, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I have a feeling. I, I guarantee that's happened to me. 100%. Right. I can't say for sure, but there are definitely shows where I was like, oh, I got this. Like, that was a great meeting. And, you know, mm -hmm. they, they see something, you know, they see something in my work that, you know, maybe isn't exactly what they're looking for, but, and then you don't get the job and you're like, oh, well, and you see who they ended up hiring and you're like, okay, that person does a lot more of that thing than I do. Right. And so, yeah, I definitely think so. And being able to like, say on you're the worst and pulling, that's a, that's a comedy show, but there are mm -hmm. also very dramatic moments and, the dark scenes and things that wouldn't you know if you watch that show as a whole you're not going to be like okay mike can do drama if i were to maybe string together a reel of all of those moments and use that as my main pitch for the job mm -hmm. it could put me in a much better place right and now that right. i'm saying that i realize i maybe should, be, <laughs> I should maybe start doing that <laughs> yeah 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 now it's yeah for real i mean speaking of even you know the star of that show there was a show that i was kind of trying to get on that she's on and they were like well he hasn't really done a lot of action and mm -hmm. it's like okay mm -hmm. so so we've got mythic quest dropping on friday 
you promoted the quarantine episode ad nauseum, right? Uh Uh, Just with the (laughs) iPhone. So people Uh can look that up on their own. Yeah, yeah. We don't Um, have to get too far into that. (laughs) But any, I don't know, anything that you would want to say about that and then your upcoming, any upcoming things that people can check out? Yeah, so... Friday, we've got Mythic Quest in the first episode, which is a standalone episode kind of outside of the season, is an episode I'm really proud of. It's a it's in our it's in our set, but it's a whole new world. And I won't say too much on it. But there's some very, very cool stuff that is outside of the norm. And that goes for the rest of the season as well. It was a Rob and the writers and everything, they really wanted to kind of push it this season and take us outside of our normal world. And there's some very, very special episodes in the season that I think everybody's going to enjoy and that I think we're all really proud of. So I, I have I have two questions. One is, what would you tell your younger self with all of the experience and expertise you've gained, what would you tell young Mike getting into this game, wanting to be a cinematographer to keep in mind? And then the second question is, what three traits do you think one needs to survive in this industry? Those are good ones. I think the thing I would tell my younger self is probably just to calm down and be patient. I was so impatient as I was kind of coming up. Like, why am I not getting this job? Why am I not, you know, and and never compare yourself. That's another big one. It's, you know, who cares what that other person is doing? Like you're doing your thing. Don't worry about it. Like you're going to get those big jobs. You're going to, you're going to be okay. And for me, I think there was just so much, so much stress early on in terms of just like not feeling good enough or not feeling capable and then it's just, it can all change in a moment where you're just, you're just like, wait a minute, I got this. And it will happen if you stick with it. And I think that kind of leads into the, you know, the three things. It's like, you need to be committed. You need to like really want to make this your life and to stay humble. That's very important to kind of make it far in this industry. and you need to stay kind. Like that's for me is such a big one. It's like, you know, I I think 25% of it is like talent and 75% of it is like, do these people want to work with you? Like, do they want to spend all day every day with you? Because you just spend so much time with these people. It's like, do they want to let you in the family? Do they want you to be a part of that? And if you're an asshole, like, I don't think that flies anymore. And I don't think people Nobody wants that. You know, it's like nobody wants to spend every day with somebody who is just difficult and like. Yeah. You know, if you want to, if you want to have practice at, you know, before you get into this industry, preparing for it, work on being the best dinner guest ever. 
There you go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like yeah, see how great. many different people's houses you can go for dinner and, and get invited back and yes. have conversation and engage. And, you know, there's even like this, there was this quote from George Stephanopoulos who went from, you know, this week, you know, his show this week with, you know, news and he was in the White House cabinet with Clinton. And then now he's on like GMA, you know, interviewing some pop artist. And he's like, I just try and find something that I am genuinely interested in. And I explore that. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, there's a there's a way for you to kind of, I don't know, find the beauty in, in just creating and have fun with it. And like you said, man, just be committed, be humble, be kind. And I think you'll you'll find yourself working if you got 25 percent of talent. There you go. Yep. Use it a little bit, not much. Yeah. A little <laughs> sprinkle. A little sprinkle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, that's, uh, I think it's been very important to, uh, to kind of get to where I'm at. And yeah, it's, it's a great anecdote. That'll be the best dinner guest you can be. <laughs> yeah, man. I love well, that. Well, look, I, you know, you're one of my favorite DPs to work with. We shared that with you before, but I feel like I know we'll always shoot some cool shit. It'll be collaborative. You'll have my back if I overthink something. You know what I mean? Like always, hey, maybe this, always. Maybe this is a little simpler. <laughs> yeah, you'll have mine. You know? Yeah, man. Well, always a pleasure, man. Mike Bellucci, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for having me, buddy. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right, so that's episode 25 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Our guest was Mike Berlucci. And as always, y'all, stay safe, spread love, and keep creating. Next week, we'll bring you director Carl Seaton, and we'll talk about his journey from one week to snowfall and beyond. Peace.